0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Re Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Today, I chat with Melinda Kleetman, who is the public impact director of the main CRISPR Center in the world at UC Berkeley. It's a great conversation. And it's part of the series that we're doing on rewriting all of biology and all organisms. And in today's episode, one of the really cool things we talk about is how important public education is for CRISPR. And, you know, Melinda talks about this crazy thing where like our status quo right now, we grow up into a status quo with nation states and computers and those things being true. But obviously that wasn't true 500 years ago. And now even like, you know, the Gen Z kids grow up with TikTok. They are what we call digital natives. And in the future, we're going to need to become kind of CRISPR native, where we grow up into a society where CRISPR is true. And that's going to be a big shift around public education that we need to do for this new technology. So enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. My name is Reese Lindmark. I'm the founder of Root, and welcome to the Reese Show. Today, I'm excited to chat with Melinda Kliegman. Melinda led bioinnovation policy and advocacy at the Gates Foundation. And is now the public impact director at the Innovative Genomics Institute, which is this cool new institute um, from Jennifer Doudna, which is all about kind of applying and looking at research um, CRISPR research, and it's at UC Berkeley and at UCSF. Melinda, thanks for being on the show and welcome.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me, and I'm excited to talk with you today.
0: Yeah, I think it'll be fun. And um, Melinda and I were chatting before about how you know she has she was a you know a biotech kind of bio PhD back in the day. But it's also been 10 years for her, you know, since being on the bench doing that. And now she focuses a lot on public policy. And so that's what we're going to focus on today is a lot of like how this kind of you know new biotechnology, especially CRISPR technologies are going to be good for society, hopefully. Um, but before we get into that, Melinda, I want to ask you for you, like, what is this through line that ties your work together? You've got this PhD in biology, but you're interested in this public impact role. How did you kind of navigate through that transition?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, two of my core values that underlie a lot of my professional decisions. um, You know, one of them is definitely a love for nature and just general curiosity. Um, And then I think there is also a really strong driver to have a career in public service. So I was born in Jamaica and I spent most of my formative years in Guyana and South America. And it's a fairly impoverished country, but it's also home to a portion of the Amazon rainforest. So I grew up, you know, spending a lot of time outside climbing trees, avoiding giant centipedes, like eating random fruit and hoping it wouldn't make my mouth super itchy. Um, And I was there because my dad was a minister. So I also spent a lot of time in service to my community. And so I think at the core, those are sort of my two most elemental values. And with my PhD in ecology, I wanted to do that because I really wanted to learn more about the natural world and be outdoors. But I had a difficult time with it, I think, because when you're doing basic research, you're really pushing on the boundaries of knowledge and trying to understand for the sake of understanding. And I think that is what makes science a really noble profession. And not everything needs to be applicable to advancing humanity. But for me personally, that kind of research didn't really jive with those core values around public service. So after my PhD, I went to the USDA and then the Gates Foundation and now the IGI because I want to use what I know about biology in service of people.
0: Cool. Yeah, that's a great, uh, concise and clear answer. Um, That's a cool, it also makes me think about, you know, for me, I remember I was a computer science major in college and I remember taking a... I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go into research or whatever. And I took a class on um, advanced algorithms or whatever. It was supposed to be like a graduate level thing. And it was just, I was so, it was doing these tiny little things that were like, oh, can we make this algorithm like 0.2 times, you know, like more efficient. And I was kind of bored by all of it. And again, as Mm -hmm. you say, there's nothing wrong with that. Some people are into pushing the bounds of knowledge, but maybe you and I are more about like, okay, how does this going to impact people?
1: Yeah. I think it's very important for me.
0: (laughs) Totally, totally. Um, Yeah. So talking about your role at IGI, let's kind of dive into that for a bit. And I think that, I mean, just to give our listeners some background here, it's like, it's a crazy thing. Like CRISPR was only discovered, you know, whatever, less than 10 years ago. And now there's going to be all these implementations of this new CRISPR technology in the world. And IGI is one of those places where that's happening. So could you tell us a little bit more about You guys have like human health work, you have climate work, you have, um, you know, just like advancing human, you know, like genomic engineering work. Could you tell us a little bit more about what IGI does in each of those areas?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, there's so much going on. I think this year is actually the 10th anniversary of the discovery of CRISPR, so that's pretty exciting. I mean, in human health, um, one of the things that's happening is a clinical trial for sickle cell disease. Mm-hmm. So that was approved by the FDA last year, and it will likely be starting this year and running for four years. And researchers using technology developed at the IGI, it's been run in conjunction with our partners at UCSF and UCLA, and they're using CRISPR-Cas9 to correct the mutated beta globin gene that causes sickle cell disease. Um, And then in conjunction with that, you know, my team is looking at ways that we could make any of these genetic therapies more affordable and accessible. Our trial is one of, uh, I think it might be the only trial that's being run by a university nonprofit. And what we're seeing is a lot of these genetic therapies that are coming on the market. They are coming on for price tags that range from 400,000 to 2.2 2 million per patient. So we're trying to see, you know, what can we do as a public academic institution that gets a lot of our funding um, from, you know, the NIH or the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine. So, sort of taxpayer dollars that funds research. How can we? deliver our innovations to society at a more reasonable price tag. So my team has spent the last few months assembling experts from insurance companies, government agencies, contract manufacturers, social venture capitalists, public benefit corporations, you know, we've pull them together in what we're calling an affordability task force mm-hmm. to see what this motivated group of experts can come up with as a creative solution to this problem around affordability so we can take things that are being developed in our research pipeline and plug them into this hopefully new creative solution so that's sort of the human health space um, um, we actually can't pause yeah. you for a second before <laughs> you go because that's
0: no, that's all delightful juicy stuff so yeah you have this sickle cell thing aka yeah and if I understand it correctly it's like we have our little cells in our bodies with are usually circles and the sickle cell means it's um, you know, a moon shape or whatever. And actually for malaria, it's good to have this kind of sickle cell thing because then you can kind of um, your body's like uh, good at attacking or like, you know, fixing its blood cells or whatever. Um, from a malaria perspective, but it's, it's bad generally because the blood can't um, hold as much oxygen or whatever. And so you're going to go in and and CRISPR is going to um, change the kind of the gene that, uh, creates the blood cells or something is that is what's tell me more about that
1: yeah so it's a monogenic disease so it means it's caused by mutations in one gene cool. and what's fascinating is that it's actually that same mutation has arisen multiple times in our evolution as a reaction to malaria pressure and so what you're saying is exactly correct if you have one copy of that gene then you are somewhat protected from malaria But if you have both copies, it's from both parents, then it's really deleterious. You can have, you know, strokes at a young age, um, severe pain. So it's and you have a shorter lifespan as well. So what researchers at the IGI are going to try to do in this clinical trial is you basically take some of the cells out of the person's body. You can use CRISPR to directly edit those cells to correct that mutation. And then you grow them. So you make some more of them. And then you put them back into the person. Mm -hmm. And if enough of those take, then that person will start to experience fewer of those um, very negative symptoms associated with sickle cell disease, because they'll be able to make healthy, some healthy blood cells.
0: Cool. Got it. And so the cell's are you taking out red blood cells and then it, or, and then pushing them back in? And then, but I guess the body itself is still creating the sickle cell ones, or do you have to like do that process often to like pump back in the new CRISPR cells? Have red blood cells?
1: No. So it's, it should hopefully be only one time. Um, so you take out hematopoietic stem cells. Um, and you make changes to those. So, you know, stem cells are the cells that can continue to replicate and make more of themselves. Um, and then those are the ones that you edit and put back in. Um, and you don't need it to be all of the cells. I, I can't remember the exact percentage, but you just need some percentage of those cells to be corrected, um, to be able to experience the, the positive effects. Basically.
0: Cool. Got it. That's interesting. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So, um, so that's on the sickle cell side. And then as you're saying before, the other interesting thing of what you all are doing is that, yeah, there's obviously tons of, you know, CRISPR stuff happening in the world. And what you are doing is you have this kind of public, you're a nonprofit academic kind of crew. Um, and so how do you, that, that affordability task force, um, how do you make stuff more affordable? Or is it, you know, part of the thing is just like a market thing where it's like, maybe they're charging 2 million bucks because it's CRISPRs expensive or whatever. I don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the things that we are trying to figure out. Um, what exactly does it actually cost? Like, there isn't a lot of information out there about it. So we're not sure, like, is it truly cost us much to make it or is it just a significant markup? Um, and I, I think it's probably a bit of both. Like, it is probably expensive to manufacture and deliver the therapies, but it's also companies that are trying to maximize profit for their shareholders. What we've also seen, too, is, you know, the IGI also works on rare diseases. Um, Some of the companies have licensed technology developed um, by researchers and academic institutions and then realized, oh, we can't make enough money from this because not enough people have this disease. And then they've just like shelved that therapy and no longer developed it when people out there could benefit from it and use it. So in some senses, the capitalistic model may not be, um, may not work for some of these therapies. And so that is something that we, we don't have the answer and, you know, we're embarking on this process to try to figure out what if anything can we do to make the situation a little bit better than it is today.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It, it is funny because you say that. And I'm, and I'm reminded of, you know, I was looking up the the drugs in the world that are the, the ones the most profitable or either profitable or the ones that have the highest revenue per year. And they're all um, diseases that affect lots of people, but also don't go away. So like rheumatoid arthritis is like the main one where it's like, you know, you're going to have for a long time. And, you know, you're going to be able to get a lot of money out of that drug because it's going it, to um, versus something where it's like if you prevent the person from going into the hospital in the first place, you don't get any money for that. And so, like, yeah, those are kind of larger um, issues perhaps within our system. One yeah. other question. or Yeah. What were you going to say?
1: Oh, I was going to say I think that companies build build some of that into the price tag because some of these genetic therapies are potentially curative. And someone will only need one treatment, um, then it's valued. It's more highly valued, and so they can justify the higher price tag by saying, "Oh, this person is going to derive a lot of value from this, and so will the healthcare system as a whole, right? Because you don't have to pay for that person to keep coming back." So, two million dollars is a great price tag based <laughs> on that. But you know that, you know that doesn't really jive with our sense of public service. So. Totally yeah
0: yeah do you think that there's a um this is just like a thing that i don't know the answer to which is i know when you see curves for um like moore's law style curves for sequencing and synthesis it's like oh it used to cost obviously in sanger sequencing way back in the day it was like so expensive to sequence genome and now it's Mm -hmm. like i forget the amount but it's essentially free (laughs) i'm not free it's 300 bucks for my genome which is very cheap um and and then synthesis is also now it's like eight cents a base pair or something and so it's how much does CRISPR cost like per base pair or whatever?
1: Um, okay. <laughs> okay. That's a little, an interesting question. So I think it's just really dependent on what you're trying to do. Right. Uh-huh. And even with sequencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so how complex is the system that you're looking at? And I think there's a wide variation in cost. Um, so let's take, you know, you mentioned sequencing. Let's take that for an example if you're looking at the entire genome of a complex organism, so like wheat, the wheat genome has 15 billion base Mm pairs, And it took like a team of researchers 15 years and like $75 million to sequence the whole thing Mm -hmm. Um, versus, you know, a virus or a bacteria where you could get the results in a a day for a few Mm -hmm. hundred dollars. Um, And I think the same, it's the same thing with CRISPR. So if you, are trying to run like a high school lab experiment, what's a proof of concept using bacteria, you just want to make them glow using CRISPR, that might be several hundred dollars. Or it could range into the millions if you're trying to learn new information um, or work in a more complex biological system. So I think there's a really wide variation um, even in between any of those technologies.
0: You know, that's helpful. But even it's it's cool to hear that, you know, um, my girlfriend is a a bio teacher, a biology teacher, and she could, if she wanted to, try to um, use CRISPR in her classroom for a couple hundred. I mean, it'd be expensive, maybe only one one thing per year, not every student. But uh, that's cool that you could do that. So let's transition to the other side here. So, yeah, you're talking about public health. What are you guys doing in climate?
1: Yeah. Oh, wait, I just want to say one more thing. I think the IGI has developed a CRISPR kit in conjunction with the Lawrence Hall of Science at UC Berkeley. Um, and I don't think it's for sale quite yet, but it will be really soon. And it's for high school teachers. Um, they get a kit that they can use with their entire class to That's learn how to CRISPR.
0: That actually makes me one other point on that, which I think you all did a really good job of, is just shaping the public educate. Like you made this recent book or something like that of like teaching CRISPR for kids. And it was like a mm-hmm. really cool... Let's actually talk about that for a second while we're still going on it. What, what like, I thought that book was, and I think you, you know, part of your your job is just public education. Part of that is like public impact. we're going through this pretty intense transition where it's like, we're going to be changing our genomes and stuff. What, wh- how do you think about that in terms of shaping a like a narrative or an educational system around CRISPR and its impacts?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I think having penetration into society where people un- know what something is, um, they're interested in it and want to learn more. I think that is such an important component of this, you know, like you said, we are potentially making changes to our biosphere, to ourselves, and I personally think that it's really important for as many people in society as possible to be engaged in that dialogue and that discussion, um, particularly people who have been traditionally marginalized or are not you know generally asked what their opinions are. Um, you know, we're also translating a lot of our educational materials into other languages so that it can be more accessible. So a big part of our of our you know, institute as whole is is this public impact thing. I think this is what makes us special in that we are thinking about ethics, we are thinking about public policy, we are trying to engage the public, we are providing educational um, materials as much as possible
0: yeah i think that's amazing i think it is such a crucial it's like how can yeah this there's this big new change happening and how can we kind of incept the popula i mean incept the population's not the term that one wants to use but like how do we make it how do we you know create this thing where everybody kind of knows okay this is what's actually going on here and now let's have a talk about how we should use it and all those kinds of things so um, okay beautiful so go, let's so okay. talk about climate what um what do you all do with climate stuff
1: i mean we have a A fairly large climate program. And it kind of looks across the carbon cycle to see what changes we can make or edits we can make to sequester more carbon. Um, And there's also some projects in um, climate adaptation as well. So I'll give you an example. One of our IGI researchers, Pam Ronald, has created a a large library of rice mutants that have longer and deeper roots. And so the world's agricultural soils have lost something like 487 gigatons of CO2. Mm. And so deeper roots are an excellent way to put carbon further down in the ground where it's more persistent um, and more recalcitrant and doesn't just get like plowed back or returned into the air. And those longer, deeper roots also have added benefits like making plants more drought tolerant, for instance. Um, and then we're also looking at things like how microbial communities interact with the roots um, to improve carbon storage and whether there's like changes and edits that you can make along the way um, to to enhance any of those naturally occurring processes.
0: Cool. And so those roots, and again, it's kind of funny because it's just like the same little tool. Is, it, is that also just like you take out the thing you say, okay, this is what the plant here's a little gene for plant root, and that one's more polygenic, probably. I don't really know. And then mm-hmm. you say, hey, let's edit some stuff, and boom, you got longer um, roots. Or how, is that one different than the sickle cell one, or no?
1: I mean, <laughs> I think lo- the great thing with plants is you can kill them, yeah, and it's okay. <laughs> so I think you know, researchers sort of knock out, you can knock out a, or knock in a whole bunch of different genes and then observe what phenotype that creates. So are they longer? Do they have more branches? Um, and then you can pick ones that have specific uh, traits that you're really interested in and then continue to work on those specific genes or breed them together. Um, and so you can kind of do a screen is basically what you're trying yeah,
0: to do. But the poor little plants, so they're getting hurt, you know? <laughs> <laughs>
1: no yeah i mean the plants
0: will be fine the plants will be fine yeah
1: yeah that's why i went into ecology as opposed to like anything to do with the human molecular biology i'm like oh yeah the basics are a little bit um easier to swallow
0: yeah that's good yeah um it makes me think too of yeah you have so yeah and you and you and, and i guess one other question there See, so are you changing uh, yeah. Okay. No, I think that that makes sense to me. Um, and I guess maybe the, then, then the final kind of big pillar that you all have is this, um, you know, beyond the public education impact. One is, uh, you know, ad, you know, advancing genomic engineering itself, because um, you know, CRISPR was the first. Like, here's random CRISPR. But then, like, are you, we're getting going to get better and better and better at CRISPRizing things or whatever. So, tell me mm-hmm. a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So I think Jill Banfield and the work that's happening in her lab is just really cutting edge and very cool. She continues to just add to the tree of life of new organisms that we didn't know existed before. Um, But some of the researchers in her lab are using CRISPR to directly edit microbes in a mixed community. Um, So first, researchers are able to identify the bacteria in the community using a sequencing approach called environment Environmental Transformation Sequencing, or ETSeq for short. And then they can go in and directly edit specific microbes in let's say a 200 member community um, within, this is still happening within the lab. And so this is really cool because in the past you would have to culture microorganisms. So I did that a lot in my own research. You take an environmental sample, you have to go in the lab, spread it on a plate, you cross your fingers, you hope something grows, and then you try to determine which species of bacteria or yeast that is, but you can miss a lot because some bacteria are just not culturable, so they don't grow in that environment and they do adapt fairly quickly. So if you change their environment, then you are potentially missing a lot of interesting information about them. So with this new approach, you can really study them in their natural setting. Um, and again, like right now, this is still in in the lab. It's like a proof of concept. But you can imagine a world where we could use this to edit the microbiome or use it in soil um, to edit soil microbes around plants for better you know, carbon storage or better uptake of specific nutrients. Um, there's a lot of possibilities there.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, yeah, once we, once we have the new tool, then we can start updating the tool and be using it in all these scenarios. And as you know, it's like some of the, it makes me think too, actually. And the question I was going to ask two seconds ago was, was, you know, you talked about for plants, you can take the, um, you know, you kind of made it sound like this kind of brute force thing where it's like, okay, you can like chop them off and see if these these plants do well. And I, and I agree with that. But there's also that what that just makes me think of is like, oh, if we're brute forcing something, can we just use AI to do the simulation brute force ourselves? Do you see much of the like, are we doing does AI? How much is IGI doing AI adjacent things, alpha fold, blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah, I think there is one researcher that is using AI as part of these CRISPR screenings but I'm not entirely sure what he's doing. It's not my area and I'm not as well versed in yeah, you're good.
0: And you in can see AI. my question was also not well versed either. I was like, blah, 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 AI. Um, so let's just <laughs> let's just pretend, you know, you know, yeah, we'll just come back to that later. Um so, <laughs> the, um, so um yeah, let me, so we have CRISPR, and which is, you know, these little, you know, cut and paste scissors, but can also be um or yeah, yeah you, can, you can, in addition to understanding what the genome is um, with sequencing and then understanding um, how to create new kind of DNA with synthesis, uh, we now have CRISPR, which allows you to kind of find a little place in the genome and just kind of insert some new DNA there or cut some out. Um, so that's obviously a big deal. And if you're using it with you know public health and some of these initial kind of disease things, but also with, um, with climate and trying to help us with climate. Um, and then we're obviously upgrading the tools themselves. And so for you, Melinda... You know, you've been doing this at Gates, you're doing this before as well. How are you and how is IGI thinking about public impact here? And specifically, maybe I would want to ask, like, what do you see as the biggest opportunity with CRISPR? And what do you see as the biggest kind of challenge?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say, you know, one of the biggest opportunities. I mean, we have this amazing tool that allows us to change the DNA of you know, any living organism in a nuanced, targeted and controlled way. Um, and that is really powerful. So that's kind of, wow. I think some of the biggest challenges um, is thinking through how to wield that power and doing so with restraint uh, and with societal participation. Um, and I, and I think when I think about this, I think about using the past to help contextualize what might happen in the future. Um, I think the biggest issues with a lot of new technologies is developers are very much focused on the short term. So they're, you know, can we do X or Y? Can we get this to work? Can, will someone want to use it? Right. That's usually where most developers are living, and but they're not frequently thinking through, oh, what happens if everyone adopts this? And what happens if it becomes super wide scale? Um, then what would be kind of the ups and downsides to that? I think, you know, I'm lucky enough to work with a lot of thoughtful scientists who are very much thinking about this already, but we all come to the table with a limited set of experiences and our own biases. So I think we really need to expand um, the range of people that we're talking to and really engaging with the public to be able to bring in more of that societal dialogue into our decision making. And that that's always really difficult to do. You know, it's like, who is society? How do you reach everyone? Who has the final say? So I think governments have a big role to play here as representatives of the people in you know, providing the guardrails. So to, to sum all that up, you know, I would say the real opportunity is that we have this amazing, powerful technology. The real challenge is wielding this tool in an incremental fashion that shows restraint and that's done with true societal buy-in.
0: Got it. And so and that mostly makes sense to me is that, yeah, let's use the tool and try to get the, because I'm reminded as I was doing research both for this show and just more generally with biotech, I was like, I learned about the a similar conference where we learned about recombinant um, DNA. And it was like, Oh, let's like 1975. It's like maybe chill for a second. Like this could be really intense. And we don't want to like, you know, change everything and make these crazy scary designer babies or whatever. Um, and then over time that, that, we had some good restraint there maybe, but then there was also this thing of like, Hey, let's actually use this and make lots of insulin for everybody or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think it's interesting. You talk about like the societal buy-in or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of connected maybe to like the public education piece and the government piece. Is there so, like, maybe, could you maybe like describe, I'm, that's still kind of maybe too abstract for me. It's like, do you want, what do you, what would you want to see in the world? That would be like your optimal future, you know? For that, my
1: yeah. optimal future as far as societal engagement or as far as what societal engagement with this, with this technology yeah I mean uh, in my dream world yeah. <laughs> there would be this like amazing platform where scientists and scientists really do want to engage with the public and they really care are able to like directly engage with a cross-section of society you know like a Twitter for scientists and societal engagement would be ideal. And they can really hear feedback from people about like, here's some concerns or here's how this might impact my community. um, If this was to be deployed here Um, and be able to sort of aggregate all that information and use it to help us make better decisions about what to pursue and what not to pursue. I mean, right now we are, guessing at what societal values are, or we're using our own values. I mean, that Asilomar conference was amazing, but it was also like a bunch of scientists sitting together and saying like, here's our values and here's how we should proceed. So how do we get broader representation into that decision-making process? Um, I think is something that would be incredibly valuable and useful, and that doesn't quite exist yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because if what I'm hearing you say is that, is that and we we almost want that same thing, but not just for biotech and CRISPR, but for everything. It's like, hey, there's gonna be a decision made. How do we know? And that decision's gonna impact some people, how do we get them and I'm I'm right with some of my friends who work in urban planning and um it's very I don't know, hip these days, or whatever to to do. I forget what they call, it, but community engagement surveys or whatever they try. To, they're on the ground. They're trying to chat with people. They're trying and they're trying to like drum up um, and, and try to get folks who are going to be impacted to kind of see what's what do they think, you know? Um, and so yeah, I could see that being. I, so, so I think I'm mostly uh, I'm mostly convinced and excited by something like that, which is and, and, and I say this because like, oh, what do I mean here? I guess there's like. Mm-hmm. yeah no no I, th- I think that that is uh, uh, that would be an amazing future especially i think that a beautiful part about that is this like connection between scientists like the ivory tower and the people where like just you just got these scientists who are just into their research but they're happy to chat with the random folks and answer questions and do whatever and then the people like get to actually have a connection with the scientists and, like ask them like what's going to happen with this new drought resistant thing in my community or whatever um okay that makes some sense do you see maybe a question for you is like, how much of your work is also like, do you imagine this being put like, will there be regulations and laws? And what will that all look like around, you know, CRISPR technology?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, regulations and policies are always lagging, right? So usually something happens, and then the government's like, Oh, boy, we need to step in, and they kind of step in. So it's, it's usually like, coming a little bit behind the technology which is like totally normal um I think on the environment and agriculture side we have heard sort of clear direction from the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh last week the IGI hosted a conference with the U.S. a whole bunch of different U.S. government agencies so you know these new biotechnologies are regulated by the FDA, the USDA and the EPA. Um, So we hosted this workshop where we talked with all of them to say, okay, if I was to edit a microbe and put it into the environment, who should I talk to and what would you be concerned about? Um, And so we had this like pretty amazing dialogue with the regulators um, where they were walking through specific case studies of like how they would think about these things, which I thought was really good. You know, on the human health side, um, there's all, you know, the FDA also regulates and pays close attention to what's happening in the space and are asking questions about, um, you know, yes, the safety, but they also want to see this technology advance because they mm-hmm. see the promise And so they are actively engaged in setting up platforms uh, to help companies and organizations like our own be able to get through that regulatory process and get things into IND. So um, it's really good to see, at least the U.S. government is really thinking about this and, you know, trying to move forward. Globally, the picture is quite disjointed, you know, like different countries are at different points. Um, in their regulatory process. So I think just last week, China said that they would allow some genome-edited crops. So we're seeing things happening, um, but it is like a bit fragmented.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Well, it's it's cool to hear because I think, you know, especially in my more kind of, you know, crypto libertarian circles, everybody's like, you know, down on the like, it's just, just the regulation and with the you know certain things they're like, oh, man, it's tough. But what you the way that you talk about um, the regulatory bodies here seems awesome. You know, they're there, they want to see it be positive. And um, they're also like, let's make sure it's good. And let's like be on the cusp of these new technologies. So that that just sounds like overall, like a very good relationship. And thank you for hosting that cool conference with them yeah. to talk about it. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we see regulations as being incredibly important yeah. to um, the responsible use and deployment of these technologies. Like we, we see it as a part of the journey.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. definitely, No. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I think that the first CRISPR tomato, there was like a tomato, a GABA like tomato in Japan that's out there and it's being used. Is there anything specific? The interesting thing with regulation, too, that I've kind of found over time is that you know, it's like, oh, here's this new technology. It's so crazy. And we're going to have to change the rules or whatever. It's like, well, actually the old rules just still kind of apply of like, you look at the harms, you look at the benefits or whatever, and you just apply it with the new technology. Is that true here? Or is there anything with CRISPR that's specifically like, ooh, we got to like make sure on this thing
1: or whatever? Um, you know, I think it partially depends on what you're making. Yeah. Um, I think for the most part, you know, there, there are pretty extensive rules for genetically engineered plants uh, that gene edited crops fit within the framework. I think a lot of regulators globally have been saying, um, you know, these products are similar enough to something that could have arisen in nature on its own, like if you're just making one base pair mutation, that happens all the time. And so they're saying, you know, if it's so similar that we can't tell it apart, then we're probably not going to choose to regulate it. Um, I think that does raise some concerns, you could make, you know, a few base pair changes and make something that has an allergen, for instance. But I guess in that case, yeah, the FDA would catch that in the U.S. So I think there's pretty good coverage across the board. I think for some people who want to avoid these products, and there is definitely like a segment of society who, you know, they don't want genetic engineering or genome editing like near their food. And we need to be respectful of that segment of society. I think if you ask someone from that, segment, they would say, we can't test for these. So like the old GMOs, you know, you would use an agrobacterium, a bacteria to shuttle in the genes that you wanted in there. Um, And so you could use that agrobacterium as a marker to be able to figure out what was genetically engineered and what wasn't. With genome editing, you're making these very targeted sort of scarless changes. And so there's no way to really tell. And I think that, you know, if companies don't have to disclose necessarily, and so I think that that would sort of violate the values and norms of that segment of society. so that might be one thing that would be sort of different and fall outside the bucket.
0: No, no, that's interesting. I think all that is, is yeah, is fascinating that, A, we've been doing GMO stuff for a while, and so a lot of that kind of, a lot of this kind of fits in that bucket. And then, as you said, sometimes, if the thing kind of looks like it, if you're just doing a little change, like, yeah, this this could have come from nature, could have come from, like, people doing this, you know? It's like, okay, this is probably fine. And as you said, sometimes a small change in the gene can actually have a big change in the phenotype or whatever, so who knows? Um, but, uh, and then, as you said, also, the scarless yeah that's an interesting term for it's like oh man how do we still yeah how, how do we kind of um yeah disclosure policies of those kind of things where we're changing these uh the genome itself without who knows how it got changed it could have been us it could have been nature who knows um so i want to kind of as we get into pseudo-ish you know closer to rap mode here i want to ask you maybe kind of a wider scope question um which is more connected into my book and kind of the the hist- the, the the future of the human race or whatever um So, you know, I'm writing this book right now just to give you some context around like what information wants and the history of genes replicating and making the the tree of life in the biosphere. And now we have memes which have have replicated um, that have made religions and companies and money and all these like the idea sphere um, and also all the tech in society. And um, now we have, uh, you know, humans are able to actually edit the genes, these replicators. And so- How do you see, a thing that I'm trying to understand, I I, I don't quite grok it, it's like, how do you think humans, as we start to use CRISPR on ourselves and on, you know, nature with the roots and all these things, how do you see this happening in the next 25 years or whatever, us changing the biosphere, you know, and changing genes?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, and I don't know if it's in the 100 years or 300 years. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think we're gonna be limited by the science. Um, it's going to be more around our ethical, moral, and societal constraints. Um, and then as far as what I think is gonna happen in the next 25 years, you know, going back to my comment around history, as humans, you know, we've evolved quite a bit. We've made massive changes to our environment. We have lived through multiple technological revolutions and I would say we are living in one right now. Um, and I think of the technologies that have really permeated and integrated themselves into our society, You know, like the printing press, light bulbs, the internet. Um, these things fill a, a real need and they make our lives easier in some way. I think after they have reached widespread adoption, they start to raise new issues. Um, based on just the fact that so many people are using them. So my prediction is the first things are going to be in places where there is a real need. So is there like a genetic disease that's causing pain and suffering? You know, is it cancer? Um, With climate change, we can see some of the crops that we heavily rely on for food um, that have been bred to be to have fairly little diversity. So things like banana, for instance, and, you know, the bananas are threatened right now by a really bad disease. Um, I could see those being kind of low hanging fruit, not to make a pun, of um, things where like, you know, in the near future, the only banana you might be able to get is an edited banana, right? Um, And then further down the road, I think it's going to be things that there is still some kind, of like in 100 years, I think it will still be things that um, maybe are somewhat preventative, like thinking like Alzheimer's or other neurodegenerative diseases. Um, But I think it's mostly going to be practical for the near, the short to medium term.
0: Yeah, Yeah. as you said, it's things that things that complete uh, that that you know uh, meet human needs are the things that we want, and that you know that that society pays for. So it's like, yeah, if um, Mm -hmm. the light is good behind me, because it is, and I pay for it because it meets my need for light. And similarly, as you're saying, yeah, all these like you know disease things or food things. It's like if we have those needs, well, then the kind of money will go there. And it's interesting. I like what you're phrasing around the constraints. For the long term future, which is just which is why it's so important to both you know democratize access and those kind of things. It's like, what um what do we value? And that's kind of what will happen. <laughs> you know, it's not really the science that will constrain us; it is us that will constrain us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So cool. Well, that's interesting. And I think maybe these final two sections then are, um, I guess, a. Do you have any advice? I think you've done a good job of both leading a science career, but also leading a kind of a public policy career what advice do you have for young folks uh, to lead an interdisciplinary career like yours?
1: Mm -hmm. I would say just try things out. So I think I definitely approach my life and my career with like a sense of curiosity and trying out lots of different things and then trying to smush the things that you like together. Um, I think that is usually a pretty good approach. I would say that, I've had to get very comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, normally I only understand like that much. I'm like not of any one thing because I'm doing like 10 different things at once. So, you know, you have to be okay not being the expert in the room and approaching your work with a sense of humility. And in that sense, it can be really fun and rewarding.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. I think, um, comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, you're going to be dumb in a lot of different ways. So it's like,
1: what's (laughs) happening over here? What is this to do with the AI and the attention? Um, Well, I just have to keep reminding myself that uh, there aren't a lot of people that do work across all these different areas. So in some sense, you are are special in your own unique way. (laughs) But you're definitely not an expert in any one particular thing. And You know, that also comes down to temperament and values, you know, some people do derive a lot of um, personal satisfaction from being like the person that knows a lot about this thing. And so it's also a matter of like, what really fits with your personality.
0: Yeah. No, I like that. Totally. And yeah. And for us, the kind of wideness fits with our personality versus the depth, um, but depth people exist too. And we, yeah. some of my best friends are depth people, you know, yeah, I have <laughs> <laughs> um, one final question here is usually at the end, I do like, like a little overrated, underrated thing. Uh-huh. Um, but for you, actually, I want to ask one kind of variant on overrated, underrated, which is, and, and and you might be biased to answer this a certain way, but if you were to rank the importance of like sequencing, uh, you know, genomes, like genetic sequencing versus like synthesis, the like active creation of DNA versus like CRISPR style kind of cut and paste or whatever, which one, mm-hmm. what would be the like importance of those three? How would you rank order them?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I would put sequencing first, uh, mostly <laughs> blasphemy, <laughs> yeah. uh, mostly because, you know, sequencing is what helps you understand what's actually there right? like You need to be able to read the book to know what's in it. And CRISPR wouldn't have happened without sequencing. They sort of build on each other. Uh, and then I would say genome editing would be the second thing. I think it's much easier to go in and like make small changes to something that already exists than to do something like synthesis where you're de novo trying to make something new. So I think that's how I would rank them.
0: Beautiful. That sounds good. You um, and, and, and I I thought you were going to rank, you know, um, editing top, but no, sequencing top. So That's good. Uh, or at least a very um, p- uh, a political, not a political play, but a very, you know, you're making sure you love all the people, the different kinds. Um, beautiful. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Melinda, for your time today. Is there a place that folks who are interested in kind of um, CRISPR for good or whatever, is there a place that they can either find you or find kind of IGA's work on the internet?
1: Or yeah. any recommendations
0: for them to go forth in the world?
1: Of course, the innovativegenomicsinstitute.org. We have a ton of excellent educational resources. So if you click on the drop down educational tab, lots of accessible videos for people at all levels to understand more about genome you know, editing. It's a really good place to go.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great, um, and I'll put a link in the show notes there and also to Melinda's bio. And I do think that there's a cool, um, yeah. If you're looking to either get into kind of biotechnology or CRISPR work, this is a cool way to both have, if you're, if you're looking to do research, but also research that has like um kind of like publicly applied research, I think it's a, a cool, a cool spot. Um, so with that, Melinda, thank you again for your time thank today you so and much. thank you so listeners. Goodbye, everyone.
1: Bye.
0: Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with the community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at Root.co. That's R O O T E.co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash reeselembark. It's patreon.com slash R H Y S L I N D M A R K. Thank you so much.